to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Atrocity crimes. Timely and appropriate action. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streitfeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. This is the second episode of a two-part series on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and international law. In part one, Professor Alexander Hinton from Rutgers University discussed the misuse of the term genocide to justify the invasion. In this episode, I'll be talking with Rebecca Barber, a research fellow with the Asia-Pacific Center for the Responsibility to Protect and a PhD scholar with the T.C. Barron School of Law at the University of Queensland on the international response to the invasion and available options under RGP. Before sharing our interview with Rebecca, we wanted to give a quick overview of the current state of the crisis to contextualize the conversation. So I'm here now with the Global Center's Ukraine expert, Ms. Sarah Hunter. Sarah, could you provide our listeners with an overview of the current situation in Ukraine? Thanks, Jackie. So we're here recording today on the 24th of March, so one month since the invasion began. And unfortunately, what we're seeing in Ukraine is a full-scale military invasion by Russian forces. We're witnessing attacks on many major cities in central, eastern, and southern Ukraine, including the capital of Kyiv, in areas closer to the Russian and Belarusian borders, with western cities like Lviv experiencing some strikes as well. Major cities like Kharkiv and Mariupol are on their way to being totally destroyed, with tens of thousands of people trapped by fighting. Russian forces have increasingly struck apartment buildings, schools, hospitals, and known shelters for civilians with targeted weaponry. Major cities have also been subject to artillery shelling with indiscriminate weapons, including reportedly banned cluster munitions. These actions may absolutely amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity. Even wars have laws, and directly targeting civilian populations and civilian infrastructure using banned indiscriminate weapons are all clear examples of atrocity crimes. And so as of today, the UN has verified over a thousand civilians being killed, including 90 children. Um, The number is likely much, much higher, but verification of these killings is difficult given the security situation in many cities. Uh, The UN has also said that 10 million people have been displaced by the conflict internally or into neighboring countries. Also, at least 12 million people are trapped by the ongoing offensives and will be needing assistance. In Mariupol, for example, residents are now cut off from the outside world and encircled by Russian forces. Before international press left, they documented civilians resorting to burying their dead in mass graves. It's just become a very devastating situation. One of the things that Professor Hinton briefly touched upon in the first part of this series, which I think is relevant to the discussion today, is that the situation didn't arise from nowhere. Uh, What are some of the factors that brought us here? Yes, uh, Professor Hinton was absolutely correct. 
And I think, as he indicated, we could talk for a long time on the intricacies here. But in short, you know, there's multiple routes to this conflict. Firstly, on the political side, uh, this conflict did not begin a month ago. There's been war in Ukraine since 2014, um, with on one side, Russian-backed separatists fighting against Ukrainian government forces in, in some areas of Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts in southeastern Ukraine, an area known as Donbass. This conflict itself was sparked by a change of power in Ukraine, one that Russia believed to be a Western-backed overthrow of a Moscow-friendly Ukrainian government. Multiple rounds of peace agreements have failed to bring about a resolution to this conflict, and in and of itself, that conflict prior to the Russian invasion in February had killed over 14,000 people, including almost 4,000 civilians, and has displaced millions. At the same time, as that conflict broke out in Donbass, Russia occupied Crimea and illegally annexed it. In all of these areas, what they have in common is a large ethnic Russian population that Russian President Vladimir Putin claims to be protecting. On the historical side, once Ukraine became independent in 1991, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, it's inched closer and closer to Western states, with aspirations to join both the EU and NATO. Putin, who idolizes this former prowess of the Soviet Union and the empires that preceded it, views the fall as not only the largest geopolitical disaster of his time, but also as the end to this historical idea of Russia. This idea is hundreds of years old, dating back to the 9th century in the Kievan Rus, where what is now areas of Russia and Ukraine were one. And Putin has continued to claim that Russia and Ukraine are one and the same, given their close cultural ties, while Ukrainians largely disagree with this, this narrative. And the security angle as well here can be kind of simplified into Russia feeling threatened by Western allied former Soviet states. Putin believes that NATO is a threat to the future of Russia and has accused NATO of desiring war over various political routes. Um, he's called for a neutral and demilitarized Ukraine, saying he would accept a non-NATO aligned Ukrainian military and Navy, among other things. Um, some say this conflict is you know, NATO's own making, itself sparking Russia's concern um, with its enlargement following the end of the Cold War. Uh, NATO's members have also yet to fully walk back from promises in 2008 um, and calls for Ukraine and Georgia to join the bloc, despite the unlikelihood of either state actually doing so, um, as their, you know, NATO states are obviously in this context unwilling to cave to, to any type of Russian pressure. And there's uh, many other aspects, too, but I think Putin's main goal here appears to be reestablishing Russian dominance culturally, politically, and security-wise over the former Soviet bloc, and including Ukraine. Thanks so much for that, Sarah. Uh, now we'll turn to our interview with Rebecca Barber. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Uh, thanks for having me. So we started the podcast interviewing Professor Hinton on whether or not there had been a credible claim of evidence of genocide in eastern Ukraine. Uh, and now we want to talk about the invasion itself and have a discussion about how the international community has responded to what is happening in Ukraine. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about what steps have been taken, uh, particularly through UN mechanisms, since that's your area of expertise. Firstly, the situation was considered by the Security Council, as listeners would know, obviously the Security Council in the international system established by the UN Charter has primary responsibility for international peace and security. Um, 
But as is also very well known, the Security Council has five permanent members, each of which has the power of veto over anything substantial that the Security Council does, and one of those is Russia. Um, So a resolution was proposed through the Security Council condemning the aggression that was, of course, vetoed by Russia. Um, And so what the Security Council then did was refer the matter to the General Assembly. The Security Council did that um, by reference to what is known as the Uniting for Peace procedure, which is based on a 1950 resolution passed by the General Assembly, um, which said that if there is a threat to international peace and security and the Security Council, because of lack of unanimity amongst its five permanent members, cannot um, exercise its responsibility for international peace and security, then the General Assembly will step in and consider the matter and make appropriate recommendations. And the Uniting for Peace resolution said that in in the event that that happened, the Security Council could um, call for the General Assembly to convene an emergency special session um, and that the General Assembly would consider the matter in that emergency special session. And if the Security Council refers a matter to the General Assembly and calls for an emergency special session, that is a procedural resolution of the Security Council and so not subject to the veto. Um, So basically that is a way of, of sort of getting around the veto requirement and transferring a matter from the Security Council to the General Assembly. So the General Assembly then passed a resolution in emergency special session deploring Russia's act of aggression demanding that Russia immediately cease its use of force and demanding that Russia withdraw its forces from Ukraine. The resolution was passed um, with a very strong majority, 141 to to 5, with 35 abstentions, um, which really was was a huge achievement for the sponsors of the resolution. I think that sent um, a very strong signal. Um, But there is, of course, um, a lot more that the General Assembly can do rather than just deploring the act of aggression um, and calling for for Russia to remove its forces from Ukraine. In terms of the other options that have been pursued um, in in the international system, so Ukraine um, has launched a creative case with the International Court of Justice on the basis of a claim that Russia has breached Article 1 of the Genocide Convention by falsely claiming that what Putin calls his special military operation in Ukraine it is based on the fact that Ukraine is committing or the, the fact that genocide is being committed in the Donbass regions. So Ukraine is asserting that there is no genocide and that for Russia to falsely invoke genocide as a basis for its military intervention is an abuse of Article 1 of the Genocide Convention. Ukraine is asking the International Court of Justice to declare that, contrary to what Russia has been saying, there's no genocide being committed in the Donbass regions and that, as such, there is no lawful basis for Russia's intervention. 
it's in terms of the likely outcome of that, I think it's probably most likely that the ICJ will declare um, a non-violation by Ukraine of the obligation not to commit genocide. I think it's probably less likely that the court will take the opportunity to get into the legality of Russia's aggression in Ukraine. But um, I, I think the court will probably most likely combine itself to findings quite closely tied to the interpretation of the Genocide Convention itself because that's the basis of its jurisdiction. Um, but we will see. Interesting. And I know there's also been some movement at the Human Rights Council to create an investigative mechanism, as well as at the ICC, where Chief Prosecutor Kareem Khan announced a new investigation. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on those. Yeah, so to start with the Human Rights Council, the Human Rights Council met and considered the situation in Ukraine, passed a resolution firstly condemning the aggression, calling for the withdrawal of Russian troops and calling for the respect for international humanitarian law and human rights and humanitarian access. Um, more substantively, it also um, established an independent international commission of inquiry to collect, analyse evidence of violations and abuses of human rights, document and verify evidence, identify the individuals responsible, um, and to make recommendations on accountability um, on accountability measures. So similar to, to mechanisms that have been established recently by both the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council on Syria and Myanmar. It's a really significant um, development and um, steps taken by the Human Rights Council towards achieving criminal accountability for violations and abuses of, of human rights. You mentioned the International Criminal Court. So the um, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court has opened an investigation into suspected war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine that was based on a referral by 39 member states. So that is underway. The most significant limitation on um, the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court is that it does not have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression. Aggression is a crime in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. However, the ICC does not have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression in this case, and that is because the definition of the crime of aggression that was agreed in Kampala in 2010 only grants the ICC jurisdiction over the crime of aggression of a state party to the Rome Statute, and Russia is not a party to the Rome Statute. The ICC can exercise jurisdiction over the crime of aggression of a non-state party if the situation is referred by the Security Council. However, the situation in this case will obviously not be referred to the ICC by the Security Council because of Russia's veto. And so it's because of this gap in the ICC's jurisdiction in relation to what's happening in Ukraine that we've seen recently the declaration and the recommendation for the establishment of a special tribunal for aggression against Ukraine. So we've seen um, in the past week a group of 40 very prominent international lawyers and, and writers and politicians 
launched a, um, a declaration calling for the establishment of what's called a special tribunal for the punishment of the crime of aggression against Ukraine. The idea in that proposal is that Ukraine essentially delegates jurisdiction over the crime of aggression to an international tribunal that is supported by Ukraine and other states. There are, there are different views on the likely effectiveness of that tribunal and indeed whether it's a good idea to establish that tribunal at all as opposed to investing more resources in the International Criminal Court. The key practical problem with the proposal is that almost all the suspects and the evidence are likely to be in Russia because unlike the crimes of, of, of war crimes and crimes against humanity, the crime of aggression takes place obviously on the territory of the aggressor state and assuming Russia would not cooperate with such a mechanism, there's the question of how, how the tribunal would get access um, to suspects and the evidence in, on the assumption that Russia would likely not cooperate with such a tribunal. Russian cooperation in that case could really only be secured following regime change in Russia, and there is an argument that if ha that happened, um, that Ru Russia may be more likely to support the ICC jurisdiction anyway. And I guess with all of these different mechanisms, what types of international legal responsibility are we dealing with? Which individuals could be held individually liable? Uh, could Russia as a state be held liable international law? Um, so in the case of the case before the ICC, um, investigating suspected war crimes and crimes against humanity, then you'd be looking at the individuals whose actions could be connected directly um, to those crimes, which can be um, any individual in the Russian armed forces. Um, feasibly also, you know, much higher up the chain of command, feasibly all the way up to President Putin. But the issue with that is that it can be very difficult to connect the actions of, of forces on the ground to higher level officials and particularly going all the way up to head of state. The, if, if the case of aggression were to proceed in the special tribunal for aggression against Ukraine, then you would, you, um, you know, that, that is a leadership crime. Um, so certainly that you know, Putin could, could feasibly um, be found responsible for the crime of aggression. In terms of the, the the case before the ICJ, um, that that is con that is concerned with the responsibility of Russia as a state um, breaching Article One of the Genocide Convention, but by falsely by falsely claiming that Ukraine has been engaging in genocide in Ukraine as a basis for its use of military force in U in Ukraine. So uh, since you've been mentioning the crime of aggression, I think what's interesting now is that we're, we're in a situation where there seem to be kind of two streams of violations that the international community is attempting to address with regards to the invasion. Um, first, there is the fact that there is this act of aggression and that Russia appears to have acted in violation of the UN Charter and other international mechanisms. 
And then the second sort of facet of the conflict uh, right now is that in their actions in Ukraine, they appear to be perpetrating violations that could amount to crimes against populations in terms of the use of indiscriminate weapons, um, targeting of civilian areas, etc. So I, I have a bit of a, a two-part question here. What other steps can or should the un- international community pursue, particularly through the UN Charter, to confront Russia's actions? And I guess the second part of that question is, and what do you think the international community is expected to do to uphold R2P in this case? Yeah, so I think two quite different questions. So I'll start with the one about what other um, options there are available to the international community, particularly through, including through the UN Charter. Um, and I think particularly relevant is through the General Assembly in this case, given the paralysis of the Security Council and the Security Council obviously cannot take any further action. Um, so we spoke earlier about the General Assembly resolution, which deplored the act of aggression, demanded that Russia immediately cease its use of force, withdraw its forces from Ukraine. Um, you know, great, great words, um, but there are actually more, there are more substantive things that the General Assembly can do um, if the situation continues to, to escalate as, as we, indeed it's seeming to do. Um, so the first thing that the General Assembly can do is call upon states to support Ukraine in the exercise of its right of self-defence. It's, it's very squarely within the competence of the General Assembly to do that. It would be recommending that states use force in a manner that is in any case lawful within the scope of the UN Charter um, with or without a General Assembly resolution. Secondly, the General Assembly can recommend sanctions. I think this is probably one of the most important things that the General Assembly can do. And the General Assembly in the past has recommended a, a vast range of different types of sanctions. It's recommended boycotts, I mean, just to provide a few examples, boycotts on trade, arms embargoes and other embargoes of various types, the severance of diplomatic relations, things like bans on cultural and sporting engagement. And it's gone so far as to recommend comprehensive mandatory sanctions. If you look at the steps that the General Assembly has taken in relation to apartheid in South Africa, um, Portuguese territories in the colonial era, then you you see some some very substantive steps that have been taken by the General Assembly in terms of recommending sanctions. In the case of Russia, obviously many states are imposing sanctions anyway, even without a resolution from the General Assembly or recommendation from the General, General Assembly. But I think if the Assembly were to recommend sanctions, it could achieve a number of things. Um, it could encourage other states to come on board. It could recommend additional sanctions, similar to, to what was done in the past in previous situations. It could feasibly increase the likelihood of coherence coherence and consistency in the sanctions that are in any case being imposed. And if the General Assembly were to recommend sanctions, it could also take the opportunity to emphasise the importance of sanctioning states complying with their international legal obligations, for example, by ensuring 
that sanctions don't negatively impact human rights in Russia. And I think as sanctions continue to step up and become more severe, I think this is going to become um, an increasingly important issue, making sure that the international community as a whole has got this balance right between ensuring that sanctions are as coercive as possible, um, but at the same time being as careful as possible to minimise impact of, of, um, on human rights for the population in Russia. Another option um, that is available to the General Assembly that has been canvassed is the option of suspending Russia from the United Nations by way of rejecting the credentials of its representatives. There is a provision in the UN Charter that allows for a member state to be suspended. That's Article 5 of the UN Charter. Um, but Article 5 of the Charter says that a member state can only be suspended from the UN upon the recommendation of the Security Council. So suspension under the UN Charter pursuant to Article 5 is not an option in this case because of the Security Council veto. However, if a member state were at any time to raise an objection in the General Assembly to the presence of Russia's representative, the, the Russia's individual delegate sitting in the General Assembly, the General Assembly could then decide not to accept the credentials of that individual. And that would have the effect of temporarily excluding Russia from participation in the UN General Assembly. It wouldn't be a suspension in name, but it would be in effect. The only time this option has really been used in vaguely comparable circumstances is in relation to South Africa in 1974 when the option was used to protest against South Africa's policy of apartheid. The competence of the General Assembly to, to suspend a member state in this way through the credentials process is not uncontroversial. There are some who argue that the credentials process can't be used to get around Article 5 and the requirement of a Security Council recommendation regarding suspension. But the fact is that the General Assembly has utilised this option in the past and if it's done so in the past, well, it can do so again. Um, I mean, that, that's obviously an option that is not particularly likely to be pursued in the immediate future, but I think in the circumstances with which we are faced, it's, um, it's useful to have all of the options on the table. And I think having the options on the table, I mean, these sorts of sort of very ambitious options on the table can help to contribute to a shift in thinking regarding the significance of the role that can feasibly be played by the General Assembly in these types of situations. I think it's also really important um, to just put out there that in international law, states have an obligation to cooperate to end serious breaches of peremptory norms of international law. In the Articles of State Responsibility, Article 41.2, um, it says specifically, states have an obligation to cooperate to bring to an end any serious breach of a peremptory norm of international law. And that was affirmed by the International Law Commission recently in 2019 in the draft conclusions on peremptory norms of international law. The crime of aggression is 
recognised as being a peremptory norm of international law, as are the basic rules of international humanitarian law. So in other words, states under the laws of state responsibility have a legal obligation to cooperate to end Russia's aggression in Ukraine and also to end any serious violations of international humanitarian law being committed in Ukraine. Um, it's quite unclear what exactly the obligation to cooperate requires states to do, but one thing that is very clear is, the, is that the obligation has particular relevance for the way in which states should use their memberships, their membership of international organisations and specifically the General Assembly. The International Law Commission's commentaries to the Articles on State Responsibility say specifically that cooperation could be organised in the framework of a competent international organisation, including the UN. And the more recent commentaries to the draft conclusions on peremptory norms say similarly that the collective system of the UN is the preferred framework for cooperative action between states. There's what I think is a really important um, comment in those commentaries with regards to the role of international organisations and the obligations of states through international organisations. And that is that where an international organisation has discretion to act, the obligation to cooperate imposes a duty on the members of that organisation to act with a view to the organisation exercising that discretion in a manner to bring to an end the breach of a peremptory norm of international law. So the situation in Ukraine at the moment is a situation in which we are faced with serious breaches of peremptory norms of international law. There is an international organisation, the General Assembly, that is competent to act, to do a number of things. So I think what what that statement from the International Law Commission means is that if the General Assembly has the discretion to, for example, pass a resolution recommending to states that they impose sanctions um, and such a recommendation might assist in bringing Russia's aggression in Ukraine to an end, doesn't need to be shown that it definitely will achieve that objective, but even just that it has a possibility to assist then the obligation to cooperate should require states to support that resolution. So I think um, that's just important to have out there that states do actually have legal obligations to cooperate to bring these sorts of situations to an end so far as possible and, and within their competence to do so. I'll move to the second part of your question about the responsibility to protect. I think this is a, a good question to be asking now because I read something the other day about responsibility to protect in Ukraine and suggesting that um, <clears throat> the lack of response by the international community, um, presumably talking about the lack of military response in support of Ukraine, um, <clears throat> basically signalled the death toll of of R2P and said that, you know, we should all stop talking about R2P and sort of admit that, you know, it was an idea whose time has come. And I think that sort of um, analysis really does a disservice to this principle of responsibility to protect, which doesn't necessarily call for military intervention in this 
in this particular situation. Um, so as you said, yes, um, certainly we are seeing increasing evidence that in addition to being very clearly a crime of aggression, um, Russia is also, it appears, committing war crimes in Ukraine, um, targeting civilians and civilian objects, um, humanitarian corridors, and certainly launching attacks in the knowledge that those attacks will cause disproportionate civilian harm. The responsibility to protect principle, as defined in the General Assembly's World Summit outcome document in 2005, so that is the responsibility to protect principle that all states agreed to and committed to, said that the international community has the responsibility to protect populations from genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing, firstly using diplomatic, humanitarian and other peaceful means, and that states were prepared to take collective action through the Security Council to protect populations from those crimes when peaceful actions are inadequate. The responsibility to protect principle, as defined in the World Outcome document, did not envisage military intervention not authorised by the Security Council. So the responsibility to protect, as defined in 2005, would not, in that case, provide a basis um, for states to intervene militarily in Ukraine, i.e. NATO going into direct conflict with Russia um, in this case because we don't have a Security Council authorization. There is a broader interpretation of the responsibility to protect and that is the principle as originally conceived and developed in the report of the International Commission on Intervention and state sovereignty, the Canadian government-sponsored commission that first defined the principle of R2P. And that version of R2P did suggest that R2P um, could feasibly um, require states or envisage states to use force in situations in which there was no Security Council authorization. That report said that military intervention for humanitarian protection purposes um, should always, so, sorry, that Security Council authorization should always be requested if it was proposed that military force be used for humanitarian protection purposes, but it did not say that such an intervention must always be authorised by the Security Council. And it specifically said that if the Security Council fails to discharge its responsibility in conscious shocking situations, then we couldn't rule out the possibility that concerned states may decide to act anyway. So it, in that broader interpretation of the responsibility to protect, it, it was seen as possible that force may be used without a Security Council authorization. But I think the really important part in that report um, describing the broader interpretation of the responsibility to protect is that it prescribed a number of precautionary criteria to be considered before a military intervention 
be launched for humanitarian protection purposes or pursuant to the principle of R2P. And one of those criteria was the criteria of reasonable prospects. So specifically, does the proposed military action stand a reasonable chance of halting or averting the atrocities or suffering that triggered the intervention? Or put otherwise, would the consequences of embarking upon the intervention likely be worse than if there is no action at all? And I think this is the really important criteria um, in the Ukraine scenario. Specifically, the authors of that report proposed that a military action for limited human protection purposes cannot be justified if, in the process, it triggers a larger conflict. They said it will be the case that some human beings simply cannot be rescued except at unacceptable cost, perhaps of a larger regional conflagration involving major military powers, and that in such cases, however painful the reality, coercive military action is no longer justified. And particularly pertinent to the current situation, it said that application of this precautionary principle would mean that on purely utilitarian grounds, it would likely preclude military action against any one of the five permanent members of the Security Council, even if all of the other conditions for intervention described were met. So I think that that is really important because I think it suggests that in this current situation on an R2P analysis, whether one looks at the narrower interpretation of R2P as defined by the General Assembly in the World Summit Outcome Resolution or the broader interpretation as defined by the Canadian Sponsor Commission in 2001, Either way, RTP would not necessarily require third states to intervene militarily in support of Ukraine in this situation. So I just think that's important to have out there because I, I don't think it's sort of constructive and it's not, you know, it doesn't further the, our goals of galvanizing inter international action in support of responsibility to protect or atrocity, the prevention of atrocity crimes to say that this situation and the fact that third states are not jumping to intervene militarily in support of Ukraine um, it is, is sort of the, the death knell of R2P um, and indicative of the fact that the R2P norm um, is an outdated idea whose time has come. I really appreciate that point that you've just made because I think certainly all of us at the Global Center, but I'm sure you and others in the R2B community have read our own obituaries a few too many times. And, and it's almost always in that context of military intervention. Um, and because we can't militarily intervene, therefore R2P doesn't work. And I think a lot of the other measures that you mentioned earlier in terms of what they can do. Um, what the Human Rights Council has already done, those types of measures are also things that can be done under the umbrella of R2P. On that point, there was an excellent paper that I just read the other day, um, which is available on SSRN by um, 
Justice Richard Humphreys and Lorma, I'm not going to pronounce her name correctly, but Hayukalna, <laughs> um, and they suggest four types of responses which they refer to as sub-war fighting combat. Um, they, they also, as have many others, take the approach that direct conflict between the West and Russia is <laughs> is not where we want to go. Um, and so they're, they're for sub-war fighting combat options um, are first, an information war, second, legal proceedings, third, sanctions, fourth, diplomatic isolation, and fifth, assisting Ukraine to defend itself militarily. And under each of those headings, they spell out a number of different options and show that under each of those, um, there are there are so many more steps that could be taken, all of which falls falls short um, of direct military conflict with Russia. And I think that again, thinking of what RTP actually requires states to do, um, that that is the way that we need to be thinking. Not oh, RTP doesn't clearly doesn't work because we're not, you know, we're holding back on going into direct conflict with Russia. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you'd like more information about the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, or populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at globalr2p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.